Early in 1888, needing some extra carpenters, there came to me, in response to an advertisement, a tall, thin, muscular man, whom, at the time, I took to be a farmer from the Western Plains. He assured me, however, that he was a carpenter, able to do as much and as good work as anyone else, that his name was Benjamin F. Pittisel, that he had a large family, and was badly in need of work for their support, and begged me to give him a trial. This I did, but soon found him to be a dreamer. Coming to him at his work, I would find him with a set of figures, and perhaps a diagram illustrative of their use, or busy making a model of some complicated contrivance. This proceeded so far that for my own protection, I had to cause him to work by contract instead of by the day, although I found him fully as improvident of his own time as he had been of mine. Little by little, I grew to like his quiet ways, and to depend upon him to take charge of the work at times when I was obliged to be absent. And one day I said to him, Ben, with all your mechanical ingenuity, you should have been a rich man before now. How is it? His answer was that heretofore the world had not seemed to be inclined to be kind to him. This seemed so aptly to describe my own case that I talked with him further from time to time. And a summary of what I learned was as follows. He, like myself, had been a country-bred boy, knowing few pleasures, but, unfortunately, receiving few school advantages. At a comparatively early age, he had married and commenced life as a farmer in Illinois or Indiana. Later, he had moved to Kansas, and later still, had been forced to leave that state, owing to some legal trouble with a bank there, to which he had given a worthless mortgage to secure a loan in money. After leaving Kansas, he had wandered through the western states, principally in the gold regions, and finally had settled in Chicago with his family, which, while he traveled, had remained in Kansas. Very soon after reaching Chicago, he had commenced working for me, and from that time until September 2nd, 1894, when he died, he was continually in my employ, working as a carpenter and builder, and as a real estate dealer, and as a wholesaler lumber merchant buying and shipping lumber from the south and west to Chicago and St. Louis, where I also sold the same products. I think it was in 1889 that I was one day waited upon by two gentlemen who wished to sell me a gas machine, by using which I could be forever independent of the regular city gas company. So great were the inducements held out that I later met them at their office in LaSalle Street, and before leaving them had bought one of the machines, which, a few days later, was arranged in the basement of my building, and I had notified the city company that thereafter I should cease to be one of their patrons. For two days the new machine performed wonders, and I recommended it to many of my customers and friends. The third evening, when I was very busy, my store was suddenly enveloped in darkness. I was obliged to turn away my customers and clothes for the want of light, and from then until morning I wrestled with my gas machine, and when Pittisel came to his day's work he found me still perspiring and, I fear, swearing over it. The machine was to him as a new toy to a child, although he soon assured me that as a gas producer it was an absolute failure. That afternoon, I instructed him to temporarily connect it with the city gas to provide light for the evening, 
and next day I would go to the company and make a new application to again become a permanent customer. As he finished making the connection, he remarked that he thought it would be a good permanent arrangement without going to the gas company. His quiet remark resulted in my having him, next day, lead the gas from the city main to the machine underground in such a way that it would not be known without a close inspection. And this I did, not to defraud the city, but to get even with the company who had defrauded me. A few evenings thereafter, the president of the company called upon me, and after quietly studying my new light for a time, spoke to me of it. I then told him that I had bought this machine for the purpose of trying a new gas that for years I had been experimenting with. Several other visits followed, and although I was apparently adverse to disposing of my new discovery, I finally did so, taking in return first a contract so skillfully worded that there could later be no claims brought against me, and, second, a check for a large sum of money. Had matters stopped here as I had first intended, all would have been well, but I neglected disconnecting from the city's supply from day to day, until finally an inspector, more energetic than his fellow workers, became aware of it, and this resulted in my very willingly choosing to pay a $500 gas bill, in preference to being openly written up and perhaps prosecuted. There have occurred other deals of a somewhat similar nature, and generally inspired by the same motive but this one suffices as an example of those that occurred later. Sometime previous to this, I had had occasion to employ an attorney to transact some business in which certain papers had to be signed in my New Hampshire name, and to do this work I employed one I did not know in order that my real name should not be confounded with the name of Holmes, under which I had been known and had done all my work since commencing business in Chicago. About a year after consulting this attorney, I was called into court as a witness on some trivial case, and while giving my testimony under the name of Holmes, I saw him sitting in the courtroom apparently much mystified. Instead of denouncing me to the court, as he might easily have done, he spoke to me alone, and later, feeling he had done me a most kind favor, I gave to him the greater part of my legal work. But though he attended to this conscientiously for me as an attorney, he at no time encouraged me to acts that were wrong, nor was he party to them. And the late newspaper comments reflecting upon his integrity are most unjust and uncalled for. Aside from this one incident, I know of no time during the nine years prior to my arrest that my two names conflicted with the one or the other, or caused me trouble or annoyance. In 1890, I added a jewelry store to my business, and placed Julius L. Connor in charge of that and my drug business, his wife, Julia Connor, assisting him as cashier for a time, who, after the sale of the store, lived in the building and supported herself and child by taking boarders. That she is a woman of quick temper and perhaps not always of a good disposition may be true, but that any of her friends and relatives will believe her to be an immoral woman, or one who would be party to a criminal act, I do not think. She lived for her child, and her one fear was that she should lose her, and as soon as the daughter is of sufficient age to protect herself, I feel that her whereabouts will be made known. I last saw her about January 1st, 1892, when a settlement of her rent was made. 
At this time she had announced, not only to me, but to her neighbors and friends, that she was going away. At this interview she told me that, while she had given her destination as Iowa, she was going elsewhere to avoid the chance of her daughter being taken from her, giving the Iowa destination to mislead her husband. I corresponded with her upon business matters later, and the so-called secreted letters lately found could have only been obtained from my Chicago letter files, in which hundreds of my business letters were stored away in alphabetical order. In 1890, I opened an office on Dearborn Street, Chicago, and organized the Warner Glass Bending Co., the principal value of which consisted in certain, not very clearly defined ideas, possessed upon the subject of bending glass for mechanical purposes. This was a stock company, in which I had interested, among others, Osmer W. Fay, a most reputable and honest man, a retired minister, of whom I will speak later in this history. Suffice it to say here that, when I found that he had invested the principal part of his savings in my company, knowing that it would not be a successful business venture to others, save myself, I returned to him his investment with interest. At this time Pitizel was in the same office with me. Selling an invention he had lately patented, known as Pitizel's automatic coal bin. I later established him in an office by himself, where he opened a patent exchange similar to the one he was conducting in Philadelphia at the time of his death. At about this time, Patrick Quinlan, a whole-souled Irishman, had left his farm in Michigan to come to the city to work during the winter months, and commenced his service with me. He soon became almost indispensable, owing to his careful management and supervision of help and other general faithfulness, and for several years he worked with me continually, though during that time he did no illegal act nor committed any wrong, so far as I know. Early in 1891 I became interested in one of the most seductive and misleading inventions that has ever been placed before the American public a device known as the ABC copier, which had been brought to this country from Europe by a prominent official of the World's Fair. He had been swindled in its purchase, and knowing this, was very willing to dispose of one-half interest in the invention to me for $9,000 worth of securities. A company was immediately formed, and by using his name freely as the president of the same, we were able to make over $50,000 worth of contracts for future delivery before our offices had been opened 60 days, numbering among our customers many large insurance companies and prominent wholesale houses. However, I was glad to sell my interests, clearing about $22,000 in cash upon the entire deal. It was at this time, while employing quite a large office force, that Mr. J. L. Connor asked me to give his sister Gertrude some work to do. Instead of doing so at once, I told him I would aid him in furnishing her with the means to take a short course in a business college, and if later she proved proficient, I would give her employment. Shortly after her commencing to attend this business college, she received an offer of marriage from a young clerk in Chicago. She spoke to us of it, and asked us to learn, if we could, of the antecedents of the young man and his prospects. Our investigation resulted in learning that he had a wife living in Chicago. 
Gertrude was inclined to disbelieve this statement, and not expressing herself as being willing to break the engagement, Mr. Connor thought it best to send her to her home in Iowa. A statement from the physician who attended her at the time of her death, long after this, speaks for itself, effectually disproving one of the most persistent and disagreeable charges that have been brought against me. I have had many young ladies in my employ, most of whom are still living in and about Chicago, whose parents and friends know only too well that far from being their seducer, I have done much to materially help them in their narrow lives, owing to the enormous competitions in Chicago for positions. At about this time, I sent Pitizel south upon an extended lumber purchasing trip, and upon his return to Chicago, he encountered some severe domestic troubles the full details of which he did not tell me until long afterwards. But at the time they resulted in a neighborhood quarrel and some arrests, and therefore he grew more morose and drank more freely than he had done heretofore, but managed to do so during my absence or after working hours, as he knew me to be wholly intolerant of drunkenness in my employees. End of section 4